Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the April scavenger hunt review in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's super califragilistic, expialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? All right. Going to keep things the same as last month uh, for the time being with regards to the order of how we're going to work this episode through. Which means we'll be starting with the superlatives and then finishing up with the top ten. So, uh, yeah, uh, I mentioned on the last episode that I was really able to just cruise through this month's films uh, due to my work injury. Uh, you know, I averaged three hunt films for the scavenger hunt per day for the first ten days. And uh, that's that's it. So it's been... About two weeks since I saw I've seen any of these films, uh, so forgive me if my my mind's a little bit hazy on them now. But I'll I'll try to do my best here and uh, see see what I can do. Um, the yeah, so let's just jump right into the first superlative, shall we? Um, and that would be biggest surprise. Uh. This wasn't a super strong month. Uh, there were a lot of films that sort of fell into the middle. Um, three, six, seven films that fell in the 50s. And uh, quite a few films that sort of just missed the 50s in the high 40s, low 60s. And so, you know, the biggest surprise, you know, like... The films that are at the top of the list are films that I expected to... I had a good hunch that they would be at the top of the list for the ver- for the most part, and it came kind of came down to two different films uh, for this this one, and those are uh, Good, the Bad, and the Weird and Crimes and Misdemeanors, both films that I I thought were great. I, I really enjoyed both of them, and of the sort of top ten films that that made it, those are the two that I was uh, the most hesitant on in, in predicting. And, and apprehensive but I think the one that kind of gave me the edge is I, I think good and the bad and the weird I not that I expected it to be good but I had a lot of hope that it would be good and I didn't have that hope with crimes and misdemeanors I thought it would just be okay and so the biggest surprise for me this month is Woody Allen's crimes and misdemeanors uh I gave this film an 83, very high. And what what took what surprised me the most, you you have these two competing and parallel storylines uh, between uh, Woody Allen's character and let me pull up the page right here and uh, and Martin Landau's character, and they're both kind of uh, dealing with. Um, affairs of the heart, uh, you know, romantic interests outside of the the people that they are committed to, and what 
struck me, you know, the whole time I'm watching this film, like, okay, like, neither of these storylines have intersected yet. None of them, they haven't, yes, they're parallel, yes, they have a lot of similarities, but if they don't actually physically cross over, there's going to be a hole left over at the end of the movie. And so, as we were building towards the finale, I knew that this film kind of completely rested its laurels on just how effective that the intertwining of these two stories would be. And, uh, man, it just, it was perfect. It, it was perfect for for Woody Allen, what he was doing. I, I thought he did a great job just having these two characters, um, you know, they, 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 they meet, meet at this party and they just have this small conversation and that's it. And, they don't really know the the, tro- the the troubles and toils the other person is going through, but they they manage to connect uh, on this on this sort of um, this this level that, that you don't really you can't really know uh, and, and and sort of like a, an instinctual level almost. Um, so. Crimes and Misdemeanors, biggest surprise. It, it really threw me for a loop because, you know, I think every time I watch a really good Woody Allen movie, I, I think that that's probably the last one of his that I that I'll find really good um, because I've seen a ton of his movies and Crimes and Misdemeanors. You know, I just I, I figured it would be somewhere in the mid to low '60s, but it, it really came out of nowhere. And, and and shocked me. So, Crimes and Misdemeanors, biggest surprise. Biggest disappointment. Uh, this one was really easy. It was a film I watched very early on in the uh, in this in the hunt. One a film that I fully expected to be in the top ten, if not at the top of the top ten. Uh, this is a film I've heard a ton of amazing things about. One that I had just put off watching. It's a film that um, Roger Ebert, I think, named like his the best film of the 1990s, and or at least the year it came out, which I think is 94, uh, and it definitely was on his top 10 or so of that that year or of that decade. Yes, 1994, and that is Hoop Dreams. Hoop Dreams. This is a documentary directed by Steve James. It's about three hours long, and it just chronicles these two kids trying to make it in the NBA. It really honestly sounds perfect for me. I'm a big fan of basketball. I particularly like college basketball, which is played at this in this film frequently. Um, I, I enjoy the sort of um, methodology behind the, the presentation of the documentary, um, as it satisfied uh, task number 23, a cinema verite film. So it wasn't like there were a lot of talking heads. It was just filming these kids going about their life and, and how the and the ups and downs of it. And yet, I was just very bored at times. I had a lot of trouble connecting to this movie. I couldn't wrap my head around, I, I still can't wrap my head around, like, exactly what the problem is. 
You know, like, yeah, there's some problems with the editing for the basketball games. And, and then I, yeah, I think the narration is really, um, is really, uh, monotone and, and, and boring. But, uh, you know, those aren't, those two things, those, that's not enough to drop a film down to like the 50s. So, I, I don't know. I mean, like, clearly, like, this isn't, you know, there are a lot of documentaries out there where you kind of know the ending going in. You, you, you know, you're researching going backwards to find, figure out the history of an, of a thing. And there are a lot of, but then, and then there are a lot of documentaries where you figure out the story as you're going along. And I think the problem for me here is that this doesn't really fit into either of those categories. Um, he couldn't have known the story going in, so obviously he didn't know if either of these kids were actually going to make it to the NBA. But at the same point, you know, like, he can't... Uh, he, he's just telling the story as it's being shown to him. You know, uh, 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 Steve James, he doesn't have any agency in this film to um, to present it in a particular way. He can't skew the story to make it more or less interesting because he's just presenting us with footage of what's taking place. And I mean, that works sometimes, you know, that's, that's not, not to say that any film that, that follows this sort of same style is, is going to be bad or that I'm not going to like them. But in this instance, it just, I guess I don't know. I guess I don't know what we were truly, really getting at. You know, I think it felt like the impression was that this was supposed to be a movie that showcased the difficulty in in following your dreams, as well as how poor off and worse off this this sort of underpaid, uh, undereducated community is, and that you know this out these you know like sports this sort of uh sort of light at the end of the tunnel element is is kind of the biggest uh hope for them to to make it in a lot of cases and you know those are very powerful themes those are very powerful emotions to to draw out of a person um far be it from me to say that this film you know doesn't touch on these topics but particularly and i don't um i want to say for william uh so the the two boys are arthur ag and william gates i want to say it was william towards the end of the film who it wasn't until like the final 25 30 minutes of the movie where i finally felt like i knew what he wanted um like i i finally found out and realized like okay this guy doesn't really want to be, you know, like being a professional basketball star, that's not his true goal. You know, he doesn't want, that's not what he's really about. He just wants to get out of that life he's in. And I wanted that a whole lot earlier in this movie. Um, because I think that, that idea in and of itself is like, it's not really about the basketball. It's not really about the game. It's far more, about being able to elevate yourself beyond the means that you come from. And I just didn't get enough of that throughout the first three quarters of the film. And so by the time it finally came out, it was just very, it was just too late. And, and, and it, it, 
negatively impacted that early element, early parts of the movie. So, biggest disappointment is Hoop Dreams. Yeah. Worst film. Um, so we only had one film this month that fell into the awful range, the 0 to 24 range. Uh, this film got a 22. And it was one of the two films um, uh, as part of the number 27, 28 tasks. Any two films with the same title. So this was one of the Bad Boys films. And to be honest, both Bad Boys films are very low on the, on the ratings. Uh, but this one has a 22 directed by Rick Rosenthal. And that's Bad Boys from 1983 starring Sean Penn, Rennie Santoni, uh, Ali Sheedy, Clancy Brown, and a handful of other people. Um, Sean Penn is sent to prison for vehicular manslaughter, and, uh, the person that he kills is related to this guy who, for revenge, tries to rape, uh, Sean Penn's girlfriend, played by Ali Sheedy, and then they end up in jail together, and they have a confrontation and all this sort of thing. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> I think that the biggest issue out of the gate is the performances. I thought they were pretty, pretty bad, pretty shitty. Um, particularly Sean Penn, like he is so young in this movie and so far removed from, uh, his greater, his greater roles like Milk, like, um, like Mystic River, that kind of a thing. <clears throat> and the vibe of this movie is so TV. Uh, you know, the effects feel like TV, the coloring, the, the cinematography, it all feels like it was a movie that would have played directly on TV, uh, and, and just really didn't have a lot of cinematic quality to it. Uh, you know, and this film takes place, you know, about 35 years ago, and it makes, and, and, you know, I, I sort of mentioned this in the letterbox review, but, I, I don't, you know, I have no familiarity with juvenile ref schools or, or prisons or whatever you want to call them. I've never been to one. I have only seen them in films. And and, and, and to that effect, I don't know that I've seen any others from like around this exact time period. But it looked, it looked like the funding for whatever, for this juvenile reform school was maybe $10.00. A day or something. Like, it looked like they got no funding. It looked like it was poorly kept. Like no one washed it, cleaned it. No one swept the floors. No one picked up all the trash. You know, it looked just like completely forgotten and and cast aside. And I, I'm, I mean, maybe that's accurate. I don't know, but it didn't. I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like a reform school should at least look better than a prison, and it doesn't. Um, there's a scene with a radio where it kind of, you're kind of completely expecting it to blow up or, or something to that effect. And the way that that scene plays out, I thought was just ridiculous and, and absolutely nonsensical. Uh, not to say, you know, like the film isn't off. It isn't, isn't the worst, you know, there's plenty of worse films. You know, I gave it a 22. So there are you know, anything rated 0 to 21, I think, is worse than this. And 
it just it just it didn't do anything for me it, it was completely for you know it was one of the the only reason it wouldn't have been like the most forgettable film this year or this month rather is you know because it is the worst film of this month basically because you know even thinking about it now and you know it's been more than two weeks since i've seen it since i saw it I really, you know, the thing, the scenes that stick out to me are the radio scene and then the final confrontation scene between Sean Penn and Rick Santoni, uh, who are, or not, not Rick Santoni, Rennie Santoni. Uh, and even that scene I thought was just like really silly and, and poorly executed and staged and, uh, yeah, I, I, I just didn't find there to be much merit in, in this film whatsoever. So, yeah, so that's Bad Boys, worst film. All right, let's let's cheer us cheer ourselves up a little bit. Funniest film, uh, yeah. So there were quite a few, um, quite a few possibilities here. Uh, you know, the Good, Bad, and the Weird entered this this category for a while. Uh, you also have. Um, you know, for I toyed with witness for the prosecution. I thought that had a lot of humor to it, although not really a comedy. And uh, but or or maybe gentlemen prefer blondes. I think it's okay, and I, but I think it has a lot of humor to it as well. So uh, I even toyed with the ant bully. I think it was not a good movie, but I think it had for what it is. Just the idea of ants using magic and, and that strange thing. And like Nicolas Cage as an ant alone is like very funny. But I had to say no to all of those films because the funniest film of April Scavenger Hunt was Life of Brian. Uh, should come as no surprise. It is a Monty Python film. It is based on the... Um, the th- the three wise men stumbling upon the wrong infant on their on their pilgrimage to find Jesus, and uh, for the rest of his life, Brian finds himself just outside of the right location of of where he wishes he was, or where he should be, or where he could have been. Uh, and so, time and time again, he is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, essentially, and uh, you know, Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, these guys, they play like five or six different roles depending on who you're looking at. They, there's a lot, a lot of funny stuff in this movie. It didn't all land for me. Uh, You know, it's not gonna you know, it's not a very, very highly rated film um, for me, but it is quite funny in in small pieces uh you know the the commentary the social commentary the religious commentary the um governmental commentary is is really funny the entire uh, i can't think of the names of the people they're talking about the entire scene where um uh i want to say don't remember which one it was. I want to say it was Michael Palin's character who played uh, uh, the the. 
it's been too long and they all play the same <laughs> they all play like five different people anyway there's a scene where they're like going over like names and if you've seen the movie you know exactly what i'm talking about that was hilarious uh just like I think it went a little too long, but for what it was, it was very funny. You know, the the straight-facedness of it and just how we're, we're trying to be, trying not to, you know, bursting out laughing is, is, is like getting these people killed. And it's kind of ridiculous. So, I, I don't have a ton of, like, great specific examples from the film. You know, the ending with this, with, um... Bright Side of Life is is fantastic. Um, just all the ways that like the the characters come up to Brian as he's hanging on the cross and and is being crucified. Those are very funny moments, as everyone kind of has a different outlook on it. And then they come to ask for who Brian is, <laughs> so they pull down a different person. It's the comedy of errors. It's very funny. Uh, it's very funny. And this was a movie that will show up again later. So that's Life of Brian, funniest film. Most powerful film. Uh, film that impacted me the most. Um, this is a film that I expected a lot of amazing things out of and got a lot of amazing things out of. It is an Ingmar Bergman film from 1957, and that's The Seventh Seal. It was not close after I saw this. Uh, Starring Max von Sydow, Gunnar Bjornstrand, B.B. Anderson, and others. Uh, Max von Sydow plays a disillusioned Swedish knight named Antonius Bloch, who uh, returns home and finds his country in the grips of the Black Death, whereupon he challenges death to a chess match for his life. And the film, very quite short actually, but the, the chess match kind of takes place across the entire film, and they kind of pick it up and drop it as they go through. And in the meantime, uh, Antonius Block is seeking to commit, you know, a redemptive act prior to his passing. You know, whether his passing be in the, due to the chess match with the death or, or some other such reason like the Black Death... He wants to make sure he's leaving the leaving Earth on a high note. And the conversations between Sidow and Death, the conversations between the players uh, that, that Sidow meets along the way and uh, and himself, you know, there are a lot, there's so much philosophy, so much end of the world contemplation uh, going on here. Uh, you know, far more than I could possibly, you know, absorb in a single viewing. And this will definitely be a film I come back to at some point. But it was just what I was able to glean and uh, the amount of detail and power that come from the words that are being said and, and like the things that were written... Uh, uh, by Bergman himself, uh, you know, he, he presents this incredibly tragic character in, uh, in, in Block and, you know, not, not as tragic as, as a lot of other characters, you know, that I've seen in, in Shakespeare plays or, or such, such and such things like that. But 
it, it, there's just this sort of overhanging pall to the entire film, as there should be, you know, when you have a character like Death. But he he's sort of, this entire, the film revolves around Block sort of seeking an answer for, for why everything is so terrible. And, you know, he's using this sort of prolonged match of chess with Death to try to come to an understanding. He doesn't need an answer, I don't think. I, I don't think he's looking for the truth, necessarily. I think he's just looking for an understanding. Um, you know, even if that understand, you know, it's kind of like the idea of, it's not asking what the meaning of life is, but it's asking if there is a meaning to life. You know, it's a yes or no question. Like, is this, is this worthwhile or isn't it? And, uh, to the film's credit, I, I think that it, it is able to kind of fall on both sides of that question. It doesn't exactly confirm or deny that life has meaning. Not that the film itself knows or, or that Seidau or, or Bergman really know if, if life has meaning whatsoever. But in the context of the film, for Antonius Block and for death, you know, they're, for death, I think... Uh, he would know uh, if there is meaning to life. I, I think that's within his purview uh, as someone who sort of ferries and accepts all of the people who pass through life. And it's that idea, you know, like you're having a chess match with death and what exactly is the point to life once, if once you're dead you're in a completely new state of being. And is that state of being sort of the end goal? Or is it something to be avoided? And therein should, you know, is this sort of prolonging of his 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 death really necessary for a block to do? Or is it just simply easier to accept your fate and, and just let life and death take you where it may? Uh, there's just, there's so, so much going on here in this film. Uh, and, you know, like, that's just scratching the surface, as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's incredible symbolism, not with, not just within the dialogue, but within the, the images and, you know, the relationships that form between, uh, Sidow's character and, these other characters that he meets along the way as he's trying to save them, as he's trying to redeem himself. And you have to, you have to sort of give yourself into this movie and let it take you where it may in the same way that it kind of feels like that's the, it, that's the, the answer death is giving to, Tony's block, you know, like, look, you, you're searching for a meaning. I, I don't have the answer. I can't tell you the answer. You just have to accept that what's going to happen is going to happen and just do as much as you can with what you have. And ultimately, you know, that's kind of how block approaches things. He's, you know, he, he's not going to sit around and wait for the end to come. He's going to go out. He's going to be proactive. He's going to try to save and help as many people as he can or, or 
in this instance, he's helping these these traveling players as much as he possibly can before he's no longer able to. So, so the most powerful film this month is The Seventh Seal, Ingmar Bergman. Most forgettable film. Uh, I mentioned there were a ton of films in the 50s that made this one of the most, tr- one of the trickiest categories for the month. Uh, and, and really, really just, there's so many that I, I don't really remember that well. Um, and so I was trying to pick out, you know, like things like The Love Witch. I really remember the aesthetic to that. I really remember the way it looks and, and the main character. Those, I think, so like that eliminates that from possibility. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, there are too many, there are too many scenes in that that I'm I'm just so familiar with from have, what I've seen of the show. Uh, Hoop Dreams, while I didn't think is good, uh, definitely is not something I'm forgetting. I was you know, more than capable of talking about it quite substantially. Uh, First Girl I Loved is a film I liked. I just didn't think it was very good. The Late Show uh, is sort of noirish, but. It has enough substance to it, and I think the acting is good enough, um, especially from Lily Tomlin. Uh, the Unbearable Lightness of Being just has far too great acting in it to, to really be considered for this. Uh, the Lost World is a little too iconic, and uh, same thing with Backdraft. Like, There's too much action going on to really forget it. And so the film that ends up being the most forgettable film of the month is The Cobweb. Cobweb, I gave a 52. Uh, so very close to the middle. And as best I remember the plot, it's about drapes at a uh, mental facility, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, everybody's upset about the drapes and how they want to do them. So, most forgettable film, The Cobweb. Next up, most entertaining film. Uh, I've mentioned this one already a few times. Uh, It hasn't won a superlative award yet, but most entertaining film goes to The Good, The Bad, The Weird. I love this film. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was great. It was exciting from beginning to end. Uh, You know, I didn't feel like it was a too long i felt like it drew just enough inspiration from just enough different sort of american western films without ever feeling like a carbon copy it definitely felt like its own original film uh just picking and and dropping in pieces as it needed to the acting and characters are all great i i loved uh all of them in their respective roles uh, particularly um, Lee Byung-hun, who plays the bad. Uh, you've got Jung Woo, uh, excuse me, sorry. You've got Jung Woo Sung playing the good and Song Kang Ho playing the weird. And those are, those guys are awesome. They're fantastic. They're, the final showdown at the end between the three of them is great. Uh, but definitely not my favorite scene from the actual movie. I just had a ball with this movie. It was funny. It cracked me up. It was exciting, exhilarating. I really highly recommend it. And we'll talk about it later, so I won't go into too much more detail at this time. But that's most entertaining film, The 
good, the bad, the weird. Best performance. Huh, man, you know, like, there are a lot of potential. There's a lot of potential here. You have Side Out and the Seventh Seal. Um, you have, uh, I, I considered Landau in Crimes and Misdemeanors. Mm. Uh, you ended, you know, you have both Bogart and Bacall in To Have and Have Not. You have pretty much the entire cast in The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Uh, you know, Toshiro Mifune from Yojimbo was was considered for a while. Um, what we got here? We've got, I had Charles Loughton from Witness for the Prosecution in there. Um, there was, you know, a lot of the actors in Stalker are quite good, but they didn't fully, fully make it. And ultimately, ultimately, it ended up being um, ended up being someone from The Proposition. Uh, the Proposition, a, an Australian Western uh, set in the 1880s, starring Guy Pearce, Ray Winstone, Emily Watson, Danny Huston, David Wenham, John Hurt, Noah Taylor, among others. It honestly came down to Guy Pierce and Danny Huston from this movie. I thought they were the two best performances I've seen this month. Uh, you know, this is a very gritty film, and there's a ton going on here. And uh, this was Danny Huston in a way I'd never seen him before. Uh, Guy Pierce in a way I've never seen him before. And they both just knocked their roles out of the park as these two brothers, um, Huston being the the uh, the far more troubled, far worse of the brothers, and Guy Pierce sort of landing on the good side of the spectrum, ultimately. But I like the the final scene between the two of them in this movie. They they Huston has has stumbled out of this house. He has collapsed and is sitting down, watching. Uh, like watching the the distant sunset, and he turns to Guy Pierce, and he says, "What are you going to do now?" And you know, in that instant, I was like, "It's got to be Danny Huston." But then, almost perfectly, the the reaction and and response from Guy Pierce, I thought, was just so so perfect, so beautiful, so well portrayed i have to give this this win to guy pierce in the proposition i think throughout the entire film he is struggling with not only the life of his younger brother in his hands but the fact that the only way to get it back is to kill his older brother there's a lot going on in this film uh, a lot of family ties a lot of family imagery and themes and it ultimately ends up as just this this final calm moment you know there's been a lot of action there's a big big sort of drawn out torture sort of scene uh, not that you really see a lot of it but just you end up but then to end up on this very quiet morose melancholy moment between Huston and Pierce's characters as you know they just kind of sit there watching the sunset watching the horizon and Huston just looks over and asks, what are you going to do now? And uh, 
I won't I won't give away how Guy Pierce reacts, but it, it's in my opinion, it's it's perfect. And I think throughout the film, both of these guys are incredible. Guy Pierce gets a little more to do as he is far far more of the main character. Uh, you get to like sort of watch his inner turmoil as it battles back and forth against itself for the majority of the film. And uh, man, I I wish this guy Pierce was still uh, still around. I haven't I've never seen Guy Pierce like that before. I think he is definitely I, I would love to see him pull off something like that again and I, I really haven't seen it before uh, so best performance guy pierce the proposition best direction man there's some great directors in this month's crop you have woody allen for crimes and misdemeanors um you have kurosawa for yojimbo you have bergman for the seventh seal um and right like already you've got some huge huge names uh, and huge uh, roles. You've got Tarkovsky for Stalker. Uh, you also have Billy Wilder for Witness for the Prosecution. These are some of my favorite directors of all time. And uh, it was just, you know, you even have Hitchcock for The Lady Vanishes. You know, like that's a that's a huge num like that's a very very powerful and promising list of of directors. And it really, for me, it ultimately came down to two names. It came down to Bergman and Kurosawa. So The Seventh Seal versus Yojimbo. And while one of those films is certainly better than the other, the question is, which film has better direction? And I think that for me, it is certainly the case where The Seventh Seal is far better written than Yojimbo. But I think that the direction in Yojimbo by Kurosawa is just a touch better. So I, I edged out the win to Kurosawa. I think that what he does with this very convoluted, very um, sort of uh, almost like heist level planning uh, that he has to do to to sort of pull off this movie is, is incredibly impressive. And, you know, you look at this movie and, you know, it's just about the sort of conflict between rival gangs in this small town and all enter Toshiro Mufune who just uh, plays both sides against each other and he's constantly on one side, constantly on the other side. He's backstabbing everybody. He is swapping sides with everybody and it's it's just a very entertaining, very highly rewarding film that completely, completely falls to pieces without great direction. Whereas a film like Seventh Seal, if all of the same dialogue is in that movie and it's somebody besides Bergman directing it, I think it's still a good movie. Not a great movie, but it's still a good movie. I think Yojimbo would completely crumble without the impeccable direction uh, by Kurosawa. <sighs> and... Uh, it, it just like the way that he structures the film, the way that he edit it, edits it, the way that it's sort of pieced together and you ultimately get this very satisfying, very rewarding culmination in, in uh, Mifune really biting off a lot more than he can chew at multiple times. 
and yet somehow finding a way to sort of succeed at his goal is is impressive and you know it's kind of like you go into this movie you know sort of the ending you know from the beginning like okay well here's our main character things are probably going to work out like this and then the idea that a good film will still give you that ending but toy with you to the point where you forget that that's the ending you know is going to happen and that's exactly what kurosawa does you know you start this movie you're like okay this is going to be this is going to be a good ending for our our main character and then every step of the way you sort of see like wait maybe it's not maybe it can't be maybe you know each new twist each new turn you he you know mifune's character uh sort of bobs and weaves in and out of danger almost scene to scene and it's it's highly entertaining and enjoyable to watch and it owes a hefty majority of the reasoning for that to akira kurosawa so that's best direction akira kurosawa for yojimbo nine superlatives down no repeats at this point but the final superlative best scene is from a film that has already won and uh best scene is is a tricky one you know the ending to the proposition was a candidate the ended the ending to crimes and misdemeanors um the the interrogation of uh what's her name of i believe marlene dietrich's character in in witness for the prosecution uh you know the 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 finale to life of brian you know a lot of great scenes in this this month um unfortunately uh some of the bigger films stalker the seventh seal yojimbo as great as they were i could not pull out a single particular scene that i really felt uh in and of itself was incredible and, and the best necessarily of the month and so they kind of didn't really factor into the equation at all. And what ended up winning the day is the good, the bad, the weird, the town gunfight. So this is a huge set piece uh, with two sort of two sort of rival factions. Uh, one led by Byung Hun Lee, and the other led by uh, the, led by Song Kang. Let, one led by Lee Byung-hun and the other led by Song Kang-ho, uh, the good and the bad. And it's like a 15-20 minute scene. You've got Jung Woo-sung in there as the weird. He's sort of on the good person's side. And the film, uh, I talked about Free Fire last episode and how the film ultimately kind of struggles to present where everybody is in relation to everybody else very well. This this scene, this huge set piece, is perfect. I, I never really felt lost. I always kind of knew where everybody was, and the way that these characters make use of their surroundings, make use of the items they pick up, of their weapons, and everything like that, I found to be brilliant. It. I was hooked the entire time. 
Uh, it's kind of in the middle of the movie, and it, it was just such an exhilarating and exciting scene to watch and play out. Uh, these these three guys, and then a ton, a ton of red shirts uh, to sort of complement them uh, are, are exciting. There's a moment where Song Kang-ho is like, he has his arm twisted into a rope, and he's like swinging around above this entire set, and like using a shotgun, a, a a rifle to like fire on people from above as he's flying through the air. It's like, oh, it's crazy. It's so cool. And I just, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was very, very good. Best scene of the month is the town gunfight in The Good and the Bad and the Weird. Uh, which means The Good, the Bad and the Weird, quote unquote, wins the superlative battle. With two wins against everybody else's one. But before we jump into the top 10, uh, I wanted to go over some of the stats from uh, the predictions that were made by listener Miran. So, uh, like I mentioned in the preview episode, Miran predicted my star rating for all 30 films that I watched this month. Um, He did some of his own analysis on those predictions, uh, which I've sort of incorporated into uh, the numbers I'm going to be talking about. And this this won't take too long. Uh, You know, we'll we'll try to cut through it as quickly as possible, get to that top 10. But out of the 30 predictions, Moran was able to accurately predict my rating for nine films. So he got The Love Witch, Yojimbo, The Shadow, The Late Show, the Cobweb, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Memoirs of a Geisha, Witness for the Prosecution, and The Middle of Nowhere on the Nose. Perfect. Perfect predictions. So that leaves 21 films that he was off on. Uh, seven of those films he underpredicted, so my rating was higher than the one he thought it was going to be. So for Fantastic Planet, I was half a star above what he thought. Uh, to Have and Have Not, I was half a star above. The Seventh Seal, I was half a star above. The Good, the Bad, and the Weird, I was a full star above. The Ant Bully, half a star above. Stalker, the second largest differential. Uh, uh, You know, if you remember, he predicted anywhere between two to four and a half stars. Um, He and I both averaged that down to uh, 3.25 for his actual prediction for the sake of math. Uh, which means that I was two and a fourth and two and a quarter stars above what he thought it was going to be, uh, and then finally the Lost World I was a half star ahead of him on that. So in the seven films that I rated higher than his prediction, he was off by a total of four and three quarters stars. Uh, so that's I, I don't think that's too bad. I think less than a star average for those those few films is pretty solid. And, um, you know, it's not quite, I I mean, you know, it it shows that he's not super way off. And, you know, technically my rating fell into the range he had for Stalker, and I completely understand why he had such a varied range there. But, um, yeah, I I mean, I'd say that's a pretty solid, um, a a solid, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It was pretty good. However, 
14 films, he predicted higher than what I actually gave him. So definitely on the whole for the month, he was a little above, or he thought I'd be a little higher on in general uh, as opposed to what was actually the case. Um, so uh, these films, I'm going to run down a list of films. These are the films that he was only off by half a star low. So Shadows, The First Girl I Loved, The Lady Vanishes, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, The Life of Brian, The Proposition, um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Bad Boys, the Michael Bay film. So all of those, he was low by half a star. Uh, and then the rest of them, so The Pit and the Pendulum, he was one full star lower. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a f- er, er, or rather, he, he, I was lower on these films than his predictions were uh, to actually. Sorry, misspoke. The Pit and the Pendulum, I was one star lower than his predictions. Buffy and the Vampire Slayer, I was one star lower. Uh, the Grifters, the widest margin of the month, I was two and a half stars lower. So 50% of the entire uh, range of ratings, so from zero to five stars, he was off by in fully half of that. So that's that's a pretty wide margin. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly what could have been done to mitigate that issue. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, I looked at the Grifters. I did not think that it was going to be quite so catastrophically bad in my eyes but uh you know some you know you there's 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 outliers there's always going to be outliers uh hoop dreams another pretty significant miss uh i was one and a half stars lower than that which was really surprising for me and him you know i don't know i would not have predicted anything that low i would have been off that far as well uh backdraft i was a full star lower and then finally the 1983 sean penn bad boys one and a half stars lower. So, of those 14 films, the total amount of star difference uh, was 12 and a half, which means that he was 17.25 stars different from what uh, I was going to... Uh, um, what, what, uh, what I actually gave, uh, which is still just about half a star on the in, on the entire month different um you know he uh that's pretty good you know i you know it's not as though you know he and i have been friends for 12 years and have gone to the movies all the time with each other it's not you know we're far less far less uh friend friends than that circumstance you know i have a lot of people who i've gone to the movies with multiple times who and not to say that they'd be any better at predicting my ratings for these movies, but, you know, I think that this, this is the first time he's done this. Um, and uh, this is, I think, a pretty pretty average, decent showing. I think that, uh, you know, anything under half a star off average is really good, you know. Um, you know, I talk about this in a realist podcast all the time, and I find it, I feel like it would be even, I think it would be just as difficult for for uh, James and Zach to, to do the same thing with themselves. Especially, particularly over 30 films uh, for that month. I think they would also, you know, I mean, I'm sure, like, they have, they know so much about each other's tastes in film. I think that they would still have a lot of trouble accurately predicting this. Because it's not just about how much you think the other person's going to like the film. You also have to be completely in tune with the way they rate films. 
so as Moran kind of explained when he was writing them, he kind of used a blanketed uh, uh, guideline of that I, on average, rate films about half a star lower than he does to what he based on what he was looking at at the time. And so, you know, like that kind of has to factor into it. So if we like this, so if we like this such and such a film equally, my rating would be lower than his. And so, you know, he has to take that into account as well. So, um, you know, they just posted the May scavenger hunt online. And uh, I'm like cutting right into the middle of this episode. But they, they did that uh, just today, yesterday. And uh, I already filled mine out. It's on Letterboxd if you want to take it out, take a look at it. It's, an, it's public. You can view it, see what, what's coming up. Uh, all those films will be discussed on the preview episode in just a few days. Or I guess tomorrow when you're listening to this. And uh, yeah, so now... Let us go into the top 10 for April's 2017 scavenger hunt. Alright, starting with number 10, we have a 1979 film directed by Terry Jones with a rating of 67. That's The Life of Brian. Uh, the Life of Brian, satisfying task number two, 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 11, which is a movie featuring mistaken identity. Uh, Life of Brian from the Monty Python comedy troupe um, is a good movie. Uh, you know, I, I really thought it would end up better. I, I, you know, I've... But now I'm sort of at this point where I'm not ascribing that that expectation on future Monty Python things uh you know i've been underwhelmed by a lot of their stuff lately and this is just uh another one and not that it's not good i think it's a good movie you know 67 it's not that's not nothing but you know three stars is far cry from the average of four stars that it has on letterbox and uh yeah i don't know i mean like i said it's the funniest film from the month in my opinion and there are a lot of great skits in this film. Um, and once or twice, I think it really touches on some really inspiring social commentary, social satire. But too much of it just felt uh, like throwaway segments, uh, you know. And I, I, I really wanted it to be a much tighter, stricter satire than it really ended up being. Uh, so it was, uh, it was unfortunate. And I... I I don't know. I mean, maybe lowering my expectations will will give me a better experience with future Monty Python things. Uh, but we'll we'll see. Uh, we'll go. We'll see going forward. So that's number ten, Life of Brian, sixty-seven. Number nine with a sixty-eight. So just a touch above Life of Brian is the nineteen thirty-eight film directed by Alfred Hitchcock, The Lady Vanishes. Lady Vanishes, film number four on the scavenger hunt, which is a movie produced by a film company that no longer exists. Uh, that film company is Gainsborough Pictures uh, from the UK. And uh, this is a solid Hitchcock film. Uh, again, I'm pretty low on it, 
uh, in relation to some other people, a lot of other people, the average film rating on Letterboxd is 3.9 stars. I gave it a three-star review. But it's good, and I think it opens well. It establishes the characters, establishes the stakes very early, and in, and does a good job of that. And it ends really well. I think the final cer- sequences and the reveals are, are well done, well positioned, well made. It's the middle act, the second act, that really crumbled for me. Um, and, and I guess crumbled is probably the wrong term, but I, I mean, I guess I just mean that it dragged a lot. It was not as tense or, or exciting as I think it probably needed to be. I think a lot of the character motivations were not clearly defined as they should be. And, you know, because 90% of the characters during the middle of the film just do not want to help um, uh, Iris Henderson at all, trying to find Miss Freud. And a lot of them even claim that she doesn't exist. And that's fine if I can if I can wrap my head around why this is all happening. And I get that, like, sort of at the end of the film, they kind of... Um, uh, what's the what? What am I? They they retcon those reasonings, but I need something in the middle of the film to give me an indication of like what's going on. I I can't be completely in the dark because that's not enjoyable. You know, you need a thread, you need a a thin dot of light to kind of keep you going. You know, or you're just grasping at straws. And I think that in this instance. There's just enough, just not enough there to support the middle. But opening and ending are great, and uh, the film is good. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, in my opinion, you know, the highest of quality from Hitchcock. But even the worst Hitchcock is is a good is a good effort. And you know, I don't think on the whole that you'll most people will be overly disappointed. And in fact, most people are far more enjoyable on this are far more positive on this film than i am so that's the lady vanishes alfred hitchcock number nine with a 68 number eight is a 1973 film directed by renee lalu i hope i'm pronouncing that right uh, it's an animated film called fantastic planet i gave it a 71 so very good category in the 70s uh, and this is film number nine from The Hunt, an animated film that does not use computer animation or cell animation. Fantastic Planet is a sci-fi film uh, following the blue giants called Drogs and their pet Ohms, uh, which are essentially humans uh, as far as this film's concerned. And uh, yeah, so essentially you have this one Ohm picked up by a Drog, comes his Comes its pet, eventually breaks free, uses the knowledge he's gained to find other ohms and unite them against the drogs to sort of revolt. And man, uh, great social commentary on just racism, prejudice, social caste, uh, you know, inequality in general, things that we still struggle with today, uh, things that were far more prevalent 40 years ago or and you know beyond that, but. You know, it's not quite as as much of a disparity. Uh, you know, you know, slavery would be the most uh, obvious comparison to make. 
at least in the United States, we're not really dealing with slavery. Uh, there are places in the world that are, but we have not fully, uh, you know, we have not fully recovered from the errors of our ancestors and and. This is a film that presents a shines a light on that disparity, and you know, you you there's a lot of social commentary here. I think it's a well-made film, and the art is gorgeous. It looks great. You know, it's all hand-drawn and and beautiful to to see, and you know, it's not terribly detailed. You know, you don't get lush. You're not going to get backgrounds like you'll see in in Pixar or Disney films by any stretch, but you know the just i don't know it just it has a great aesthetic to it and uh you know it, it's 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 an important film I, I think it's a very good film i liked it quite a bit so that's fantastic planet number 8 with a 71 moving on to number 7 with a 77 from 2005 directed by john hillcote it is the proposition Proposition is film number 12 on the scavenger hunt, a movie from the genre you watch the least, which are westerns. Uh, this takes place in Australia in the 1880s. Guy Pierce um, having won the best performance superlative is, uh, you know, I, I wish I could say he was in a class of his own in this film. He's not. Danny Huston is right there with him, uh, as well as Ray Winstone and Emily Watson, I think, are do a very great supporting job as well and simply you know you know huston huston pierce uh i was very relatively lower on uh prior to seeing this film you know i thought pierce was a fine actor but i never really saw him elevate himself to a level that i came close to what i saw in the proposition the only comparison i could really have is memento i think he's good in memento i don't think he's great in memento uh, Huston, on the other hand, I don't. Nothing off the top of my head comes to mind when I think of a great Danny Huston performance. This is a great Danny Huston performance, and for both of these guys, you know, anytime I see them in the future, I'm going to be looking to see if they can reach the heights that I thought they got to in this film. Huston, I think, um, outkicked his coverage a lot, a little bit more than guy pierce does but on that by by the same hand like guy pierce's uh guy pierce started at a higher point than huston so he still ended up higher hence why he won the best performance award uh the film itself the narrative uh is is very compelling and guy pierce plays his role to perfection uh you know giving you the inner turmoil of you know both of his brother's lives are on the line and he, it's kind of on to him to decide which one's going to live and which one's going to die. It's far easier to sacrifice his younger brother, but, you know, the film makes it very plainly clear that his older brother, played by Huston, is kind of a bad dude, not a good guy. And so, you know, he's struggling with that, and it's not an easy decision to make, as, as it shouldn't be, you know, any time you know, lives are on the line, it should not be an easy decision. And Pierce presents that uh, that turmoil very well. So, the proposition, 
really great, really, really good film. I liked it a lot. Um, definitely impressed me, particularly in the performances. Um, and kind of like I mentioned, uh, that ending scene in this movie between Huston and Pierce is is great, narrowly missing the best scene superlative as well. So that's the proposition number seven with a 77. And uh, let's go on. Number six, we jump into the 80s. So from here on out, great films uh, abound. This is an 18, 19, sorry, 1989 film directed by Woody Allen, starring Woody Allen and Martin Landau and Angelica Huston and Alan Alda, among others, and that's Crimes and Misdemeanors. Following these two men, all uh, Allen and Landau, who are co- currently in the process of cheating on their significant others to some respect, uh, very, to varying degree, whose stories are parallel for the most part until finally at the end of the film they intersect where Landau is explaining to Woody Allen a sort of film pitch almost about murder, um, which is an incredible scene. Uh, You know, Woody Allen writes it perfectly. And, you know, this is just another great Woody Allen film. He has a lot of them. And... I keep thinking that I've run out of great Woody Allen films. I keep being surprised by it. As I mentioned, you know, this is the best, biggest surprise of the month. And I'm, I hope Woody Allen can continue to impress me going forward. You know, I've only seen about half of his films. He's continuing to put them out on a yearly basis. Uh, Cafe Society from last year was fairly good, but I'm still, you know, I haven't seen anything quite to the height, to his, his heights. Uh, to the height of his power since uh, Midnight in Paris. And I think that was in 2012 or so. Uh, but Crimes and Misdemeanors is great. Uh, I gave it an 83. I was very impressed by it. The performances, uh, Landau in particular, I thought was was a standout. And I'm hopeful that Woody Allen can keep putting movies out because I will keep watching them. And... Uh, all there is to it so with an 83 crimes and misdemeanors number six number five uh is a 2008 film directed by kim ji-woon and that is the good the bad the weird uh the good the bad the weird film number 13 on the scavenger hunt a western not set in the american old west and i think i skipped uh crimes and misdemeanors which was film number 20 which satisfied a hybrid genre movie, which was a uh, dramedy, drama, comedy. Uh, So, Good, the Bad, the Weird gets an 85, which is technically tying it for fourth, but the film in fourth had a little bit better tiebreakers. Good, the Bad, the Weird, starring Song Kang-ho, Lee Byung-hoon, and Jung Woo-sung as the Good, the Bad, and the Weird, respectively, is an homage to American Westerns, and I think I caught a little bit of Kurosawa in there as well. And it is beautiful. Uh, it is the only film that won two superlatives this month. Uh, most entertaining film and best scene. The action, the performances, the comedy in this movie are great. The characters are incredibly well developed. Uh, and, you know, it, it definitely takes most of its inspiration from Good, Bad, and Ugly, but 
it's it's uh it's its own film it's its own thing it's doing a lot of different things it's set in the 1930s in in korea or in manchuria rather uh starring you know following these three korean outlaws who run in with the japanese army chinese bandits russian bandits and each other and it's like an it's an adventure film you know at the center of this film where it's all about a treasure map and that's great and that's awesome and you know it, it does some things better than you know some of the than you know good bad and ugly and other american-made westerns and it doesn't do everything but doesn't do everything better there's some you know some of the music and and score to this film isn't quite as iconic you know a lot of the uh, film, filmmaking and cinematography, you know, it's not as pristine, it's not as tight, and, and the writing, I don't know, you know, it's, you know, it's been a while since I've seen Good, Bad, and Ugly, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of great action, great performances, great character beats and moments, and, uh, I quite loved this film. It was, it was a thrill to watch. So, Good, Bad, the Weird, with an 85, number 5. Also with an 85 uh, is our number four film, which is a 1957 film directed by Billy Wilder, Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, This is film number 25 on The Scavenger Hunt, a film featuring Arthur Tovey, the 12th Arthur Tovey film I've seen. He was only in about 30. I'm not entirely sure why uh, that mattered to our, our host this month, but Far be it from me to uh, to inquire. I love Billy Wilder, and he does a fantastic job here, letting the letting the characters and letting the courtroom kind of drive the action. But what really impressed me, and uh, you know, we 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 didn't to go too deep into this film. It didn't win any of the superlatives, but it, it's it's a courtroom drama where you truly see the extent characters are willing to go for uh, the people they love, as well as the ending of the film, which I loved, I thought it was great, uh, is is kind of um, a revelation in and of itself. It, it completely explains to you and shows you how this entire courtroom saga has impacted everyone it's come into contact with. Uh, particularly Charles Lawton's character, who makes, who's a, who's fairly changed by this entire ordeal, and you wouldn't expect that going in. You know, he is a very paint by numbers. You you think you know his character fairly well. You know, you can predict the fact that he's going to end up as the defense lawyer, etc. And so, you know, to see these changes happen for these characters is pretty substantial you know you generally only really see changes in the uh in the the defendant you know whether or not guilty or not guilty uh, but the, you know the last time i really saw a, a courtroom drama that did something like that to this effect rather was uh, runaway jury which i i love i think it's a great film one of my favorites and witness for the prosecution it's up there it, it's a very good film. Like I said, 85 is a very high rating. And I was very impressed by it. I continue to be impressed by Billy Wilder. And it's uh, 
Highly recommend it. I really think you should go out and check it out. So that's Witness for the Prosecution with an 85, number five. Um, number three with an 88 uh, from 1961, directed by Akira Kurosawa. We have Yojimbo with an, uh, film number eight, uh, a Jidaigeki movie, uh, starring Toshiro Mufune. Uh, yeah, Kurosawa, this one, he knocks it out of the park. And I was somewhat hesitant, you know, not as hesitant as I was on, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors from Woody Allen, but I'm, I'm, I'm being a little more tepid with my, my, my expectations for Kurosawa than I think most people are. I've had some really great experiences with his films, but not to the same extent that a lot of people have. Yojimbo is, I think, if I look it up right really quickly here, Kurosawa. Uh, Yojimbo is the second best film that I've seen so far from him. It's the sixth film of his I've seen, with uh, the best being Throne of Blood. But it's only the third film of Kurosawa's uh, that is rated higher than an 80. And, you know, most people are rating his films five stars left and right. And uh, only Throne of Blood has breached the 90 uh, rating from me. So, to that extent, you know, I... I was very impressed with this film. Mifune starring, playing uh, the title character Yojimbo, uh, entering the city. He's playing everyone against each other, and uh, he is constantly switching sides. Um, he's aligning himself with everybody and in order to sort of further his own gain. Uh, but at the end of the day, this film comes down to Kurosawa's direction. He won the superlative for it. He... You know, I've I read the entire synopsis of this film after watching it, and just the the concept for how to make this film work without like a ton of exposition and you know plotting it out and things like that is is incredible. And Kurosawa does it so deftly, and it seems so easy to him, and it's like second nature almost. Uh, you know, he you know he called on Mifune, a frequent collaborator, to completely own this film from beginning to end and he backs him up with a ton of like supporting cast Tatsuya Nakadai, Yoko Tsukasa, Isuzu Yamada, uh, Daisuke Kato, Takashi Shimura, Hiroshi Tachikawa, like maybe these names don't mean anything to you. Um, a fair few of them are already on my spreadsheet um, and not that I could pick any of them out of a lineup based on their names which I is on me you know that's a problem, but you know they are so they are the supporting roles in this film, and they are really playing these bit characters uh, to perfection. And that's another thing Kurosawa does so well is is the performances he gets from his actors are top notch every single time. And so Yo Jimbo, I loved it. I think it's great, um, and. Uh, has really hyped me for future Kurosawa films a little bit more. And, you know, I was already excited for them because, you know, 
the name Kurosawa just brings with it such levels of prestige. It's it's tough to tough to ignore. So, Yojimbo and 88 number 4. 3, I'm sorry, number 3. Two films. Here we go. Number 2 from 1957 directed by Ingmar Bergman. It is the 7th Seal. Seventh Seal is film number 10 on the scavenger hunt, a movie in a language with less than 10 million native speakers, uh, in this case, Swedish. Uh, Bergman is just as an, icon- just as an iconic name as, uh, as, as, as Kurosawa, as, as Woody Allen, um, and uh, he proves it in the Seventh Seal. Man, this is a clippy 97-minute film that is... One of the densest, de- most densely written films I have ever seen. I fully believe that just reading the script of this thing would be uh, just uh, a completely, you know, would give would you would gain so much reading this script, uh, and then to see it played out on the big screen is is far more impressive and adds an incredibly and in another entire level to to what's going on here you know that's you know again like that's why kurosawa wins out in in uh the directing superlative but this film wins out because it is so perfectly written down to the word and you know i've seen this film now it was a couple like three weeks ago at this point and it stuck with me I still see images from it, but by and large, it, it's the themes and you know life, death, um, the idea of redemption, the idea of ascribing meaning to oneself, and how that impacts others around you, what you can do in the face of insurmountable odds, and just, and I'm sure far more other things that I couldn't even glean from the first viewing. This is definitely a film that needs revisited. It's a film that demands your attention, demands that you focus and pay attention. Attention, attention. And it features an incredibly deep and profound performance from Max von Sydow, who was in his 20s, I believe, when they filmed this, which is unbelievable. It's, It's insane how young he was when he made this film. Uh... You know, Bergman, to the same extent of Kurosawa, is a is a director who, whose films are nominally known as incredible. Everyone is rating them five stars. I give this four and a half stars, so I'm I'm right there with those people. I, I completely see it in in Seventh Seal. Uh, Persona is still my favorite film of Bergman's, but to that extent, you know, I do think that I'm a little low on average for Bergman that than most people. Uh, not to say that he isn't the incredible filmmaker he is. Like I've just been, as I've been saying, like I think he's fantastic, and this film proves it. But this, like for like Kurosawa with Yojimbo, I think Seventh Seal has really piqued my interest and made me that much more interested in in pursuing Bergman going forward. Uh, so I love the Seventh Seal. Uh, it's an it's an incredible film. Uh, it's like I said, it's fairly short, so you know you can watch it back to back in about three hours, and 
you might want to because it's that challenging and that distinctive and that interesting. Um, yeah, so, man, number two this month uh, with a 93, uh, the seventh seal, most powerful film from this month's hunt. And number one, best film from this month's hunt, a film that did not win any of the superlatives but came close on quite a few, uh, is a film I haven't really talked about much yet, uh, from 1979, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, another incredibly huge name in cinema, uh, and that is Stalker. Uh, so top three films this month are foreign language films from, you know, the 70s and earlier. And this is a two and a half hour long film, more than two and a half hour long film. It is a sci-fi film that I gave a 94 to, and uh, Stalker is film number 19 from this month's Hunt, which is a movie you will only ever need to see once. Uh, and that may not be true, actually. I, I kind of fully expected it to be. Uh, I didn't think I would be as interested in it as I actually am. I didn't think I'd love it. I thought I'd respect it, but not fall for it in this way. And... You know, it edges out Seventh Seal by just a point. You know, both films are very well written, very well directed, very well acted. Uh, but I think the point of contention and where I think Stalker sort of sets itself above Seventh Seal and a vast majority of films uh, that may even be higher rated than this is, is in its production design uh, and and uh, and in its just its atmosphere in general. Um. You know, when when you, you know, when you think of a film like The Lord of the Rings, any of them, or when you think of Hogwarts from Harry Potter or Mad Max Fury Road, when you see these iconic locations in cinema, uh, you know, you you there's just some images that you can see a frame of, and you're like, oh, I know that, everyone knows that, you know, they're they're some of the most recognizable moments uh, of all time and i think to that effect stalker is right up there you know if it were a more frequently watched film if it was in the sort of zeitgeist uh f more often you know it would get the same treatment this film looks like it looks like tarkovsky was in the future filmed this traveled back in time and released it. It I, I never once thought, you know, he was just filming in Russia or filming in the Ukraine or wherever the hell he was filming it in. It absolutely feels like they are in the zone and they are traveling to the room and that when they get there, that their secret hopes will be revealed. It, it it's it's so completely immersive in the best of ways. And I I think that there's very few films that hold a candle to the type of atmosphere that this one gives off. I was incredibly impressed and and exceedingly interested in this idea of secret hopes, you know? So these men are being led to this room where you enter the room and presumably what you truly want deep inside your core comes true. And the 
the wrinkle in that is that you don't know what you really want. You can't possibly know in your deepest, most feral and, and barren soul what you really want. You know, everybody, you know, is out there like, yeah, I want to be rich. Yeah, I want to be famous. Or I want to have food or kids or a happy family. Or I just want to be, I just want to enjoy life. Or I want to go on a trip. Or I want to climb a mountain. I want to swim a river. I want to this, that, and the other thing. I want to be my own boss. I want to sleep all day. I want to play all night. I want to this, that, and the other thing. You know, those aren't your secret hopes. And and I think that the fascinating thing about this is that as hard as you can try to come up with what you want in in the pit of, of your being, you can't. You can you can never fully wrap your mind around it. Uh, I, in my opinion, that's how I that's what I think. And so, the notion that these people or anybody really would want those feelings brought to fruition is kind of interesting because who knows what's going to really happen you know as much as you tell yourself that all you really want in life the only thing you want is for the person you love to be happy you don't know that that's actually the case maybe what you really want is you know to be for you to be happy or maybe their happiness doesn't involve you. You know, like, I, it's, 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 I don't know, it's so complicated. And, and the film does a great job of, of presenting that notion and really struggling to reconcile it with these characters that it presents. And this is a very slow burn film. Uh, and so it gives you a lot of time and it's very plodding and it gives you, and it's methodical, and, but it lets you learn these characters understand who they are, get to know them, and really, really embrace just what this pilgrimage, what this this um, trek that they're in, uh, going through is about. Uh, and so this is a seminal sci-fi film, one of the best films um, ever. You know, I gave it a 94. Um, so it's not quite in my top 100 but it's easily in my like top one, top 200. Uh, and, and, you know, if I do happen to ever watch it again, maybe it goes up. It, it, it definitely has that up possibility. And so, yeah, Stalker. Number one, best film from 2017, April's Scavenger Hunt. Um, with a 94, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. And and that's that's it. That's the top of the list. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, if you want to see, check out the superlatives and how this month's films stack up against previous month's films, uh, you can go over to circleoffilm.com where you'll also find previous episodes of the podcast uh, as well as the Circle of Film Awards updated daily. Um, if you have any comments, concerns, questions, or answers, if you want to check out next month's May's scavenger hunt uh, list, it is on Letterboxd. Uh, it is a public, publicly viewable list. If you want to 
predict what my ratings will be, please go ahead. Or if you just want to talk about anything at all, uh, send that stuff to circleoffilm at gmail.com. Happy to hear from you. Um, and as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same night. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.